The following is a sermon from Pastor David Salinas of Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. On November 7th, 1944, English author and philosopher J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, wrote a letter to his son, Christopher. And in this letter, he, he coined a new term that in his mind described the heart of what makes every story truly great. The word was eucatastrophe. You from EU, from the Greek word for good. So a good catastrophe. So I want you to have in your mind's eye just the worst possible thing that could happen to you, the most just abominable catastrophe that could befall you, and the reverse of that. And, and the way that Tolkien described it is, a catastrophe is a happy turn in a story so profound, so dramatic, that in the end it leaves you just drenched in tears of joy. He described the euphoria that we feel when we experience a eucatastrophe to, to the joyous relief when a limb that's been out of joint for a while gets suddenly snapped back into place and you're just like, ah. Well, we've come to the ball joint in the story of Esther, haven't we? And if you'll recall, up until this point, things have gone rather catastrophically. Things are excruciatingly out of joint for Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. Haman, the racist Haman, has manipulated the womanizing Xerxes to decree an extermination of the entire Jewish people. And to make matters infinitely worse for Mordecai in particular, but for Mordecai and Esther, he has been up all night overseeing the construction of a 75-foot pole on which he just dreams and salivates of impaling his worst enemy, Mordecai, in the morning. You think to yourself, things could not get absolutely worse. Now, thank God that in all of our lives, to this moment, we have not faced such a catastrophe, such things that terribly out of joint. But let me tell you, in all of our lives, because we walk in this world sin-broken and sin-ravaged, there are always minor catastrophes going on all around us, are there not? And something is always just a little bit out of whack, something just a little bit out of joint. And let me tell you, there is a disaster looming ahead that we have no idea about, because who in the world knows what 75-foot pole Satan and his demons are planning to impale us first thing tomorrow morning. But oh my goodness, God, I mean, he's better than a Swiss timepiece. This Lord that we serve, this Lord who loves us, who is ever so divine and ever so amazing, is ever so perfect in his timing, and he has brought us to the point of the story where he is about to do what makes every story truly great, 
where he is about to cause some rumbling catastrophes for Esther, for Mordecai, and for you and for me. And let me tell you, I cannot thank him enough or think of a more wonderful time to set this beautiful truth before us, especially as we now welcome a new called worker and friend and partner and his dear wife here with us. I want us all, through these words, to experience the euphoria of the joyous relief of the eucatastrophes that God is causing in all of our lives. Esther, chapter 6 through 8. We're going to read some selected verses. I invite you to follow along. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bixana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Right, then moi. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Oh, yeah, just like that. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. You the man. At once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. And here's where I want you to put that little, like, surprised emoji expression right there. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, eating crow all the way, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Then the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing to my queen? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Poetic justice, huh? Then the king's fury subsided. Propitiation. Esther again pleaded with the king, 
Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. This is the word of the Lord. What are you, catastrophe? Is there a better way to describe that? I don't think so. I mean, what has just taken place is a cataclysmic shifting of poles, a complete reversal of polarity. The haughty enemy just got humbled. And the humbled servant just got hoisted. I mean, this is one of those, you can't make this up file. This is one of those life is stranger than fiction deals, isn't it? Because Haman, up to the very beginning of our lesson, has been riding on cloud nine, right? He has been plotting and planning. He's, he's tired, but he's euphoric because he spent the whole night dreaming about how he's going to impale his worst enemy on the pole. And then for a brief fleeting moment, he goes from cloud nine to the outer stratosphere. When his king asks him what should be done for the man the king delights to honor, and Amon is so full of himself, he can, for the life of him, imagine that the king means anybody else. And so just like a, a child on Christmas morning dives for those presents and rips into them without even saying, bothering to say thank you, the, Mordecai, or Haman starts going in about all of the wonderful accolades and glory that a man, such a man, deserves. And this, of course, is the point when Haman's sky-high rocket takes a 180-degree turn into a nosedive. And this man is served a big, honking piece of humble pie with a lot of crow on the side, isn't he? And his king tells him, I want you to go and do just what you said for more. And things go from bad, terribly bad, to inexplicably worse, like that. And this man ends up impaled on a pole that he designed for his enemy. You know, we might even say that Haman, who tried to overcome Mordecai by a tree, was by a tree overcome. Isn't that interesting? Then there's the flip side. There sits poor Mordecai, literally, in the ashes. And down in the dumps doesn't even begin to describe how low this man is. And for a brief fleeting moment, it seems as if he goes from bottom of the barrel to even worse, even lower, more rock bottom than rock bottom can be. Because you can just imagine what he must have thought 
the moment he saw Haman round that corner with a face that looked like a thundercloud. And can you kind of just picture what Mordecai is thinking at that moment? Oh, man, this is it. I am done. But then, then his fortunes radically shift, and he goes from bottom of the barrel to, I mean, shooting for the stars because Haman comes, and who knows, maybe he's trailing behind him this small army of civil servants, but then the violence that Mordecai is bracing for and expects with that look on his face doesn't happen because Haman robes him in the king's robes, helps hoist him onto the horse, and parades him down the streets of Susa, proclaiming to everybody, to all and sundry, he's the man. <laughs> and Mordecai, at the end of the day, is standing victorious over the dead body of his old evil foe, and he walks out into the world glorified, and the garments of blue and white, royal garments, with a crown of gold on his head. What a catastrophe! Here's what I want you to remember it by. Ready? This is the magnificent eucatastrophe of the Magnificat because it is the reversal that the Virgin Mary herself sings about. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So let me ask you something. Why do you think God wants us to meditate on this eucatastrophe this morning? I believe God wants to put back into place something about our faith life that sometimes gets out of joint. See, in God's Word, He tells us and He, he calls us to endure hardship, to, to not give up, to bear our crosses daily, and here's an operative word, joyfully. God calls us in his word to be ready to sit in the ashes in our own ways at times and in various circumstances and situations. And he calls us to never become weary in doing good. But because of the persecution of our own sinful nature and that old evil foe, that part of our fate sometimes just gets placed out of joint. If I ever think that I always bear my sufferings with joy and with peace, man, I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I'm fooling myself. Sometimes I just think it's my own pride that blinds me to the truth because inside of my heart, I hear those gripes and I hear those cries and that stress and I know you do too. I know you do too. And when it comes to never become weary of doing good, Sometimes I will confess to you, I have about zero stamina, I mean zero stamina, for denying myself the sins that I especially love. But this is precisely what God is coming to put into place today. To you and me, who sometimes get disjointed because we don't bear our sufferings the way that God calls us to. To you and me, who sometimes get disjointed as we get bent out of shape at God for Him 
causing us to sit in some catastrophe, some ashes that we didn't want or didn't expect. To you and me, who sometimes procrastinate in doing the good that we know we ought to do and then tire quickly once we get around to it. To you and me, who sit by nature and by birth under the sentence of death. The Lord has this word for you and for me. I have come to completely reverse the trajectory of your life. You were headed for the ash heap because you were born headed for the place where the fire never, bur- never dies and so where the cinders never stop rising. But you are not anymore. You are not anymore because I have turned the tables for you and in your favor. And the Lord says, I want you to lean in I want you to lean in closely to this wor- these words in Esther, and I want you to hear a silence shout into your heart. I want you to hear echoes of the gospel of my son reverberating off of the very pages of this book, and I want those bouncing all across the chamber walls of your heart and filling you with extreme joy. In the story of Esther, what do you see? You see that the haughty enemy gets humbled by being lifted up and impaled on wood. Yes, correct? In my story, says God, it is not the haughty enemy that gets humbled and lifted up and impaled on wood. In that case, it would have been you. Because when you reach for the forbidden fruit that is just within your own grasp, you show that by birth, You have the very nature of a Haman. But it is not the enemy that gets impaled. It is my body. It is the king of glory. And by his willing sacrificial death, he has reversed your destiny forever. In Jesus, You are robed in the royal garments of my own image. In Jesus, I have hoisted you on my shoulders, and I parade you before the world proclaiming, This is my child whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is one in whom the king delights. And by Jesus' suffering and death, the true enemy, the true adversary, the ruler of the kingdom of the world has been brought low. And by the tree of my son, the great enemy, the vile, not Haman, but Hasatan, has been overcome. What a catastrophe! Perhaps there is just a little bit more joy in your heart as you think about that. Perhaps a little bit more love and endurance for the cross as you consider what God has done for you. And just to cement that beautiful trajectory on which God has placed you, he has one more beautiful catastrophe he wants you to meditate on. One more word to ensure that you go forward to the path and to the destiny that God has placed you. And this is this word. All things in your life will work for good Listen closely. Because they must. Because 
God's love for you is eternal. And He has chosen you to be with Him forever in Christ Jesus before He created the first ray of light. See that in this story of Esther. See it with me. Esther, she stands before the king, and in a torrent of emotion, she pleads for the salvation of the Jews. But notice, when she identifies the vile Haman and the enemy, she does not plead for the salvation of just the Jews, but what does she say? She pleads for the deliverance of her people. Spare my people. And so this woman throws her lot in and completely identifies herself with all of those who are under the sentence of death to secure the redemption. Are you starting to see this now? And then, and then, at the very end, in this, like the way that the whole story ends, where Esther and Mordecai write this decree that blow by blow undoes the decree of death of Haman, it is this beautiful eucatastrophe that, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing thing. What it does, their decree, is it grabs, it grabs the life of these people that is just about to get clamped down under the jaws of death, and it snatches defeat, victory out of the jaws of defeat. The decree of Esther and Mordecai is death being swallowed up by victory. Are you starting to see that now? And so what God is telling us here is I want you to hear echoes of the final destiny that I have for you and Esther. When you think of Queen Esther, also remember in your heart King Jesus, who threw his lot in with you, who identified himself completely with the people that were under the sentence of death and secured their redemption as his sacrifice satisfied my justice. When you think of Jesus bounding out from the tomb, think about his life, his death, and his resurrection, how it, it is death being swallowed up in victory. And there will come the day when the king will extend his scepter over your grave and he will summon you by name and you will rise shining in the splendor of the king to live with him forever. And then God says, this destiny is a certainty and I will ensure that everything works for that end. And he gives us one beautiful phrase in this entire section to cement our eternal election forever and ever. And that is that first one. Look at the very first verse. What do you see there? That night, King Xerxes couldn't sleep. Now just think about that. This entire cascade of reversals that we just witnessed, that happened in the blink of an eye, were initiated by King Xerxes' insomnia. What does that tell you? That tells you that the most powerful man in the world was not really at all control of even one little thing that was about to happen. All along, God was controlling the destiny of his people. 
what that first verse says is all along, God had his mighty right hand underneath the table, and when the time was just right, he flipped the table in favor of his people. All things, all things, everything from stage four cancer to the defunding of a pastor, every tear and every joy and every sorrow and every gladness, all of it must work for your good forever. What are you catastrophe? I guess, I guess that's it. I guess everything has been set in place. And now like John the Baptist, this is my joy. I get to step aside and joyfully go forward to Houston and joyfully pray for everything that is about to happen here at Cheer Foundation. And I pray that my joy is yours too. I go forward dedicating myself to live, how can I say it? You catastrophically. To living with more endurance and more joy in my heart no matter what befalls me. And I invite you to do the same. I go forward into this new mission field intent on causing new catastrophes down in Texas. <laughs> intent on turning the world on its head by committing myself to doing nothing and boasting in nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I know that God will bless you and equip you so that you do the same. And I go forward with this joy that I know our, I know our end. You know the end of the story with me. How does, how does it go? Oh, yeah. It will be a time of happiness and joy, gladness. 